as, as we look at these verses, we've got Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 2. Uh, just as a reminder to you, chapter and verse divisions are not part of the original text of Scripture. The writer of Hebrews didn't get down to chapter 5, verse 14 and think, okay, so I need a new thing and move down a little bit and write 6. Um, chapters were added around 1300, 1400 as printing became common and, and they, they needed a way to navigate and needed a way to navigate for a lot of people potentially. And then about 100 years later, verses were added for the exact same thing. If you remember the old, the old print maps that you got at the gas station, you'd unfold that map and down one side it would have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and across the top it would have A, B, C, D, E. And you would know that the place you're looking for is at, is at 3B. And it just kind of generally gets you in that, that area. That's all these are. Because of that, there were times when the... The, the men who created the chapter and verse divisions, and by the way, it wasn't done by committee, it was done by one guy. Uh, the chapters were and the verses were done by one guy. There are times that he just missed it. He just threw in a, a chapter division because he already had too much length and didn't really pay any attention to the passage itself. And that's what we see. He actually splits a passage so that the only way to really understand it well is to ignore the chapter break and just kind of keep going. That's what we're going to do this morning. So let's look at it together, beginning at verse 11. The writer says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for your word and we ask that as we come to it, you would exalt yourself, that we would see you high and lifted up, that we would see you magnified. We ask that your spirit would open our ears and open our eyes Grant us faith, Lord, and grant us obedience. There, there's a rebuke and a caution in these words. We recognize that just reading them out loud. And I ask that you keep us from pulling back or withdrawing. But rather, Lord, let us pay attention, careful attention, knowing that what you say is always from your love. It's always for our good. And we thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the book of Hebrews contains a number of warnings because of the nature of the book itself. What we have is a, a group of, of Jewish Christians <coughs> in the first century who for various reasons are being tempted to go back to, to the temple and its practices and, and its sacrifices. Some just missed the temple. They, they were gathering in a 
in a, in a home, maybe with a little bit of space like we have here. And they didn't have nearly the decorations that we have. They were just in a home. No sound system, no instruments, no printed Bibles, certainly for everybody to have in their laps. They were just gathering in, in a space that must have felt very plain and unimpressive. And they were coming out of perhaps one of the most impressive temples and structures uh, on, in the, on the earth at the time. I don't know if you remember, but several weeks ago, a couple of months ago maybe, I, I kind of laid out by comparison the size of the temple in Jerusalem and, and the Parthenaeum and some of the other Greek temples. And the temple in Jerusalem was huge in comparison to other temples within the world. And it was decorated gloriously, made out of marble and sandstone and granite and, uh, and gold filigree and, and gold plate. Herod invested vast amounts of money and time in order to build it. It was spectacular. And you walk out of that, away from the priesthood, away from the robes, away from the sacrifices and the massive altar 30 feet on a side, and you come into a room like this, and can this begin to compare? So there are some who just miss it. They miss it. They, mi- they miss what uh, one apologist I know calls the smells and bells of religion. Others were being persecuted. And persecution not necessarily coming from the Roman authorities, but from Jewish authorities. And they got tired of the pressure. They got tired of the persecution. As you think about it, be praying for, the, for our, our brothers and sisters in China they are going to face over the next few years an increase of persecution that, that maybe gets as bad as it did during the Cultural Revolution in the 60s. It's going to get bad for them. And because of that, there are going to be some who are weak in their faith or shallow in their faith who, who are not being able to travel. They're not being able to, to find jobs. Their children are not allowed to be in school, and they're just going to capitulate to survive. We can't blame them for that, but we have to recognize the enormity of the pressure. And as we pray for them, pray Hebrews for them. Pray that they would stay strong. And we have others then. Jesus said, if you remember, uh, I don't think I came to bring peace. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword and to to divide family members from one another. And so you've got people in this time who have... Uh, professed Christ, they've begun associating with Christ and with the church, and they've got Jewish relatives who are constantly pressing them to come back. There's nothing that we have, there's no culture that we have in the United States that begins to compare with that insular family culture that existed in the Middle East at that time, and it still exists in some place today in Africa. Uh, When I was in seminary, I was in class with a man who was a missionary in Kenya and had taken a, a furlough in order to earn his degree. And we talked about ministry in Kenya. And he said, in Kenya, when you go into a little village, you approach the head of the village and you present Christ to him. If you simply went to another person, they would look at the, the village chief. And, the, and if the village chief said, don't listen, everybody will walk away. If you can convert the village chief, everybody else will listen. We don't have anything like that in the United States. We don't have any of these family pressures. And so there, there are a number of warnings. The first one we see is in chapter 2. It's a warning against apathy. In chapters 3 and 4, we see warnings against unbelief. Here we see a warning against willful immaturity. 
In chapter 10, there's a warning against willful sin. In chapter 12, there's a warning against apostasy. And also in 12, a warning against rebellion. Now, the, the, the warnings make it clear that as Christians, we're not simply passively existing in the, the ocean of the world being swept, that we have to anchor to something and remain faithful. And so as we look at these these words, it becomes very clear that maturity matters. Maturity matters. In verse 11, we, we, it, he begins by saying uh, here, concerning him, we have much to say. The him is Melchizedek. We saw Melchizedek named in chapter 10. Melchizedek was a, a, a priest of God. Genesis 14 says this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, Now, he was a priest of God most high. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave Melchizedek a a tenth of all. The writer of Hebrews wants to hold up Melchizedek as a type of Christ, as a prophetic example of what Jesus' ministry would be. And in fact, he, he wants to get to this statement in Psalm 110.4, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We already saw that in chapter 5, verse 6. And he wants to elaborate on, on the significance of that because he's trying to show these Jewish Christians that Jesus is a high priest and infinitely surpasses any human high priest, any, any Aaronic high priest. Jesus was fully man, also fully God. He wants to show that the sacrifice Jesus offered was infinitely better, that the temple where Jesus offered that sacrifice, the altar where he offered it, is infinitely better. But he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. The, the Greek word there kind of has the sense of having lazy ears. He's, he's not saying you're physically deaf. <clears throat> he's saying you're intellectually deaf. You won't listen. And when I say these words, you don't want to think. You don't want to process what's being said. You're trapped in this habitual immaturity. He says in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you. They've been exposed to enough truth. They should be ready to be teachers themselves. Now, as far as I know, none of you adults teach driving professionally. But all of us with children old enough to drive taught our kids to drive. I taught Sarah to drive. I taught Grace to drive. Now, we also had Grace take driving at the college primarily because by doing that, we got a break on the insurance. But before Grace took the class at the college, I had taught her to drive. So I'm not a professional driving instructor, but because of my age, because of the time I'd spent driving, because of my maturity, I could certainly put somebody behind the wheel and give them a sense of what to do. That's what he's saying here. Now, just to be clear, he's not talking to people who are new Christians. You get somebody who who in the last year or two or three has given their life to Christ and and is beginning to learn. There's no pressure on them. 
He's not saying you're trapped in perpetual immaturity. He's speaking to those who have been Christians long enough that they should be teachers. And yet who have need, he says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. They don't get it. Or they don't want to get more. And it's very interesting. He says, you have come to need milk and not solid food. You have come to need milk. It's almost like they've grown down. That at one time they had begun on solid food, on more complex things. But they gave that up. And they, they went down to milk. Now, is it right for us to be reminded of the uh, elementary principles of the oracles of God, of, of what... 6.1 calls the elementary teaching about the Christ. Is it right for us to be reminded regularly about those things? Absolutely. That's what communion is. Communion is no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your walk, no matter how much of the Bible you've got memorized, no matter how much theology you understand, you need to understand this and reflect on it that Jesus died for you and he rose again. We reflect on that all the time. But these people are camped there. It's not just that they've got Jesus loves me, this I know going through their heads. It's that they've got Jesus loves me, this is all I know going through their heads. He says in verse 13, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. That's That stings a little bit. But they're infants. Iris, our our granddaughter, is 13 months old or so. She's she's been nibbling on solid food, but she's still kind of largely dependent right now on mom. That's right. That's appropriate. But not only is it appropriate for her to, to be weaned, at a time when it's right, it's necessary. Because the the same source of of nutrition that has allowed her to grow to this point will fail her if she never gets anything better, never gets anything more substantial. Now you notice that they, they partake only of milk and that is contrasted with the word of righteousness. They're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. They're focused on those, those basic things. What are the elementary principles of the oracles of God? What are the, the elementary teaching about the Christ in, in verse 1, I, or 6 1? I, I think he tells us what they are in, in 6 1 and 2. It's repentance from dead works, it's faith in God. It's instruction about washings or baptism. It's laying on of hands or uh, being made part of a fellowship of believers. It's resurrection and judgment. You know what I see when I see these things is biblical evangelism. There is a God who is holy, 
who now is calling all people to repent of their sins and their dead works, their dead religion, and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And he calls you as a sign of that faith and as an act of obedience in that faith to be baptized and to be joined to a a body of believers because you are coming to a resurrection, being raised from the dead by a resurrected Lord that will take place at the time that judgment takes place against the wicked. See, this is foundationally, this is just hearing the gospel over and over and over again. I, I've never been tempted to make every sermon an evangelistic outreach. But I know that there are certain people that you can listen to on the radio or listen to on TV, and it's like the only thing that they ever talk about is trust God, trust God. Be baptized, join a church. Jesus rose from the dead. He's going to raise you. There's judgment coming. Repent of your sins and your dead works. That's all they ever talk about. Are those things bad? Not at all. Not at all. Preschoolers begin learning their ABCs. Hopefully they know some before they go to preschool, but they begin learning. That's kind of the focus of preschool. And kindergarten is ABCs, numbers, basic, basic math, colors, that kind of thing. Yesterday we had our kids, our kids, the grandkids. And they're not our kids, they're your kids. They're your kids. We just borrow them. Grandparents just borrow. And, and in the afternoon, I was sitting on the couch, and Lucy's at the table with Linda and Rex and Evie, and they're playing, and they're drawing, and they're doing all this stuff. And Lucy comes over, and she says, would you write sentences for me? I said, okay, why? She says, so I can check them to see if they're okay. I said, okay. So I just wrote some basic sentences and deliberately misspelled some things. And she went over. I found one. And, and she missed a couple. And Linda said, no, 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 pizza's not right. I spelled it with one Z. And eventually she, she spell-checked everything I wrote. She couldn't have done that in preschool because all she knew was her ABCs. See, she's learned to read. She's learned to take those ABCs and actually do something with them. Well, what we do with the, the, ele- the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the elementary teaching about the Christ, is to grow. Now that Lucy is beginning to read, people aren't saying to her, you know the ABCs we made you learn? They don't matter. They do matter. They actually don't matter if you don't go on to read. If all you can do is recite your ABCs, it doesn't matter that you can recite your ABCs. If, if all you can do is focus on these things in your Christian life, you're, you are habitually immature. But if you build on these things, if you grow from these things, you begin to mature and you grow stronger in your faith. When he says in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 6, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, he doesn't mean leaving behind as though those things are insufficient or wrong. He means you've got to stop talking about nothing else. Now, he doesn't mean talking about advanced theological issues. He doesn't mean talking about this recent debate I've seen over eternal subordinationism versus economic subordinationism. If you're curious about it, you can ask Justin. Or ask me. 
He's not talking about those things. And these are, by the way, these are important theological topics. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about Jesus and his priesthood and the advanced nature of his priesthood. And I want to give you a picture that God gave us in Genesis 14 and repeated again in the book of Psalms that you should know. You should already have this down, but I can't do it because you're not ready and you ought to be ready. That's what he's saying. Now, by the way, when he gets to chapter 7, he is going to go into that discussion. But after he's gone through all of this in chapter 6, and we're going to get back into uh, the remainder of chapter 6 in January. We're going to go to some Christmas messages for a couple of weeks. Um, So probably the first or second Sunday in January, we'll come back to this. And we'll talk about this really difficult set of verses in in Hebrews 4 through 6. In the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Oh, that's heavy stuff. That's why what we're talking about this morning matters so much. So just as a little bit of an advanced preview, How do you tell the difference between a pretending false believer and an immature Christian? You can't. But if you challenge them to grow, if they're being fed on the word of righteousness and they're growing in their faith, and they've got these basics down, but they're growing, and challenges to faith are met with faith, challenges of temptation are met with obedience they're learning they're growing they're exercising their gifts you you quickly be able you're quickly able to see there's a difference between this person who's growing and this person who is just perpetually here paul talks to timothy about people who are always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth Why does he focus on this? Because he's saying, I'm afraid for some of you. I'm afraid some of you don't know the Lord because you're not growing. And because there is a judgment to come. And he says, as an apostle, I think Paul wrote it, as an apostle and and beloved, certainly as a pastor, I can't simply idly wonder whether somebody is saved or not. This isn't an issue of you're insulting me because you're saying I'm not a Christian. I'm afraid for some. Because they're not growing and they don't seem to care. They've actually grown backwards. They have declined. They have come to need milk and solid food. Or rather than solid food. We must grow in Christ. And we must do so deliberately. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. I really expected when I, when I went to the original language here that I would see that there was a command here. But it's not given as a command. It's just given as a plea. You can't command growth. You can't demand it. But he, he begs. Let's press on. You've got these basics down. You've heard them enough. You're not going to lose them. Press on. Peter describes this 
process of growth. This way. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. <coughs> and in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, sacrificial love. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Faith is a gift, but moral excellence is not a gift. Moral excellence is what we bring in and say, I want to mature in my faith. I want to live in obedience before the Lord. Knowledge is not a gift. We come to the Word in order to gain knowledge, in order to be rooted. Self-control is is not a gift. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. But we don't just wake up one day and say, wow, I can control myself. We have to learn. Perseverance is a gift, but perseverance is us persevering. Brotherly kindness or godliness is not a gift. Godliness is, is the way we conduct ourselves. And we grow in it. Brotherly kindness is, is brotherly affection. But it's, it's not a gift. It comes through relationships with other people. And it, sometimes through those relationships facing some challenges and us learning to lay aside our own law for the sake of caring about somebody else. And ultimately, love. Now, love is a fruit of the Spirit, too. But we don't gain the kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus had, that, that, uh, that others demonstrate to a lesser ability because nobody was better at it than Jesus. We don't come to that just by waking up one day. We invest ourselves. We invest ourselves and we learn. Growth is progressive. See, it moves forward. We begin with the ABCs of the faith and we move forward. But growth is also cumulative, right? We begin with the ABCs and then we build on those things. Uh, Most of you in this room, certainly everybody on this side and there and here and here, we're missing two, maybe, maybe, I don't know if anybody else younger is in here. You've got Iris back there? Iris is in there? Good for grandma. You're 13 months. It's time to start Sunday school. Almost all of us have been all the way through school. Uh, I, I assume that you've all got at least high school diplomas and maybe a little bit of college or graduate school. If you remember those, those, those school days, can, can you really look at very many of those school days and, and, and say, wow, on that day I learned so much? See, it's it's cumulative I, I try and pick up Lucy and Rex I'd like to pick them up once a week and it doesn't work but once or twice a month I try and pick them up from school and we go to Casey's to get snacks because I'm Papa mom and dad don't give them snacks we got food at home we can get food at home 
Papa get some Casey's. And then we, then we start driving, usually take them home, sometimes back to our house. But on the way, I'll say, Lucy, what'd you learn today? And she can't think of a thing. But she's learned a vast amount in the three or four years she's, she's been in school. Two years of preschool. Two years of preschool? One year of preschool, kindergarten. She's learned a huge amount. It's just happened incrementally. It's happened slowly. It's progressively. It's accumulatively. This is spiritual growth. It's day by day by day. It's really rare to find the day where you can point to spiritual growth and say, that's the day when I gain this huge thing. Most of the time, it's just a long progression of days. And then somebody looks at your life and says, you're incredibly mature. You're incredibly Christ-focused. And you go, really? Because you might still think of yourself as being in kindergarten. But when the crisis hits, the depth of your life is, is not you. The depth of your life is the Lord Jesus. So as we think about bringing this home, I just want to give you three things that are, are my ideas. I really can't point to the text necessarily and say they've given us the perfect application here. But here are three things that I think are, are crucial for us. The first thing is we have to set the glory of God as our high point. We've got to set that as, as our highest priority, as the purpose for what we do. All mankind is called to live for the glory of God. Of course, all mankind doesn't live for the glory of God, and that's why judgment is coming. But the command is there to live for the glory of God, to magnify his name, to exalt his kindness and goodness and mercy, to, to lift him up. Now, that all sounds kind of mysterious, kind of, kind of mystical, kind of esoteric, kind of ambiguous. Justin has a shirt on. He's got a hoodie on that says, God created and I believe. That is a very quiet way of putting God out there. And when he goes out today, if he goes to the mall, if they go to, the, go to lunch, if he goes walking or goes back to the mission, he walks in and Justin is saying, I'm carrying a flag here. And I just want you to know I'm carrying that flag. I'm not going to wave it in your face. Other people face uh, ethical issues in business. An employer wants you to do something or a partner uh, or a customer wants you to do something that's illegal or unethical. And there's a moralistic way of saying, well, no, I don't believe that's right. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But you can also say, I can't do that because the greatest love in my life is Jesus Christ and that would displease him. And what are you doing? You're vocally saying, here's Jesus. He's, he's up here. He matters to me. He should matter to you. It's magnifying. Make his name big. Let his renown be known. Make him famous. Revere the Lord. Fear the Lord. We've got to set the glory of God as our highest priority. The second thing is that we've got, to de- we've got to determine to do our part to grow. We can get stuck because we get comfortable. We can get stuck because we get comfortable. 
When I graduated from seminary, I had spent uh, two solid years because I did winter courses or inter, what they called intercession courses, and then I did summer courses. And I, and I had Greek the whole time. And I was absolutely determined when I graduated, I will translate every word I preach. And that lasted for a year or two. But time starts to catch up, and it's a lot of time. It's a lot of work. And I would do all that work of translation, and then I would go to the New American Standard or the New King James or the ESV and say, wow, they put it so much better than I can. And I just kind of got comfortable. And then there was a period of time when I didn't do very much looking at original languages at all. That was a swing back the other way. And now I've found what I I feel is a, a comfortable medium for me to have a sense of what's being said without the arrogance of thinking that my translation is the one you need to believe. But we can get comfortable where we are if we determine that we're going to grow in Christ, that we're going to come to the word of righteousness, that we're going to spend time in the scriptures, that we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit will take those things that we read and we learn and apply them to our lives incrementally, little bit, day after day after day. In a year or two or three, you're going to look back and say, I've grown. I can't promise you that tomorrow you're going to wake up and say, wow, I'm radically different today. But if, if you'll come to the word of God, if you will exalt the name of Jesus, if you are determined to grow, I promise you, I can promise you from the word of God that in a year or two or three or four, you're going to look back and say, I can see it now. I can see it. And the, the third thing is we have to be eating solid food. We have to be in the word of God. I hope it wouldn't surprise you that I would say we have to build everything on the scripture. We have to build everything on the scripture. God has given us, Peter says, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has given us all of the information we need here in this book, in his scriptures. And he has given us all of the active working power that we need in the Spirit of God who dwells within us. Our job isn't to direct what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Our job is to take in the source of truth. And it's phenomenally straightforward to do. So a question that you can answer is how much time are you in the Word every week on average? And I'm not talking about sitting and listening to me preach or, or listening to somebody on the radio or TV. I mean, your time reading the scripture, thinking about what you're reading, and then just responding to the Lord in prayer to, with what you've read. And I can promise you this too, there is a direct correlation between that amount of time and your spiritual maturity. That if that time is, is pretty much none, you're robbing yourself of opportunities to grow. But 10 minutes a day, one chapter a day, it'd take you about two or three minutes, four minutes maybe to read Hebrews chapter five out loud. Not very long at all. To take that and to say, what really strikes me in this chapter? What really grips me in in this chapter? And Lord, why would you do that? Why would you bring that to mind? Why would you direct my eyes to verse 8? Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Help me to understand, Lord, that, that, that Jesus, although he was perfect, went through this 
this series of events that, that tested and proved him. If you're already spending 10 minutes a day, what about 15? If you're already spending 15, what about 20? And I'm, and I'm, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to say if you're already spending 12 hours a day in the Word, why not 13? It's like you've got to breathe, you've got to eat. But is what you're eating spiritually good, solid food? Infants grow just because you give them food. When we, when we brought Gracie home from the hospital, she was 15 days old. She'd been born with a, a little heart thing, and, and that heart thing really weakened her. And so we fed her in the hospital through a, a, a nasogastric tube. They actually passed a tube down her nose, into her tummy, and then we had a little, just a couple ounces of, of milk, and we would just kind of let it slowly drip into her tummy. And when we took her home, she wasn't strong enough to nurse. And so they sent us home. Um, she already had the tube in place. They sent us home with an extra tube. And I just said, I can pass. I know how to check for the lungs. I know how to check for the stomach with the thing. If she happens to lose it, I can put another tube down. If I can't, I'll take her to the ER. It's time for her to come home. We brought her home, and uh, I heated up a little bit of milk, and I, and I ran it down in there, and then I laid her down on our bed to change her diaper. And she stretched, and when she stretched, she reached up, and she got her little index finger underneath that tube. And then like babies do, kind of this, she went like that, and that tube came flying out, and her whole little body went <laughs> like that. It was, and just thought, hmm, now what? Well, they'd given us a, a, a special nipple that was made for Down syndrome and cleft palate babies that you could turn, if you, if you held it a certain way, it would just drip. And as you turned it, it got harder and harder. And the idea was you start them out kind of hard, make them work, and then as they're nursing, you make it a little easier so they can actually get food. But she's got to get strong enough to nurse. We just started her with that, and she never looked back. She did, we didn't need to put the, the tube back down. But the interesting thing was, as we were feeding her, we didn't have to say, now, this is good food. You need to meditate on this, and you need to digest this, and you need to convert it to protein, and you need to make bones out of it, and you need to build your body. Her little body took care of all of that. Whether or not she was aware of what was going on, and certainly she wasn't at that point, they're just responding to the world. All we had to do was get the good milk into her tummy. Nature took care of the rest. But the Word of God is not that way. I wish I could say that all that matters is that you come and passively listen to me or some good preacher and that that would satisfy everything. But we have to personally press on. And that's, that's why you and I could both listen to the same sermon and, and walk away with very different responses to it. It's not because the sermon was different. And we press on for the glory of God. We press on determining that we're going to do our part to grow. And we press on because we are carried by the love of our God. Because it's his desire that we grow and that we know the truth. And we have the promise that as we grow and we become more like Jesus, that one day he will call our name and he will complete us. Because the more we grow, the more we see how much we've got to grow. Father, we thank you for your love for us. 
We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for, for your indwelling spirit. Lord, none of us here want to be spiritual infants. None of us want to be unaccustomed to the word of truth. And, and every one of us could begin to decline because of discouragement or fatigue or just rebellion. And I ask, Lord, for my sake and for the sake of my brothers and sisters, that you not allow us to do that. That you continue to motivate us to grow. You continue to bring circumstances into our lives which prompt us to seek you out. I ask, Lord, that you assure us as never before of your love for us and of the peace that we have with you because of what Jesus has done. And grant us, Lord, a joy in our growth, a joy in our maturity, so that we may understand the things that you have given us to understand and exalt your name on the earth. And we thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.